Welcome to Legacy Women's Podcast, where we seek to encourage women in their relationship with God and one another through monthly conversations with the women of Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. I'm going to share a little bit and just jump off of what Betsy shared on, from Genesis. And my hope tonight is to encourage us in our womanhood. In Genesis 1.31, as we, if we listen to Betsy's talk, heard, after God finished his work of creation by making mankind, it says, and God saw everything he had made, and it was very good. And Betsy did a great job showing us that it's the contrast of the not good before the woman was made that really highlights God's creation of both men and women in his image as very good. But I have a question for you. Do you think, do you really think that being a woman is very good? I enjoy keeping tabs on the cultural chatter around this topic. And this summer in particular, at least to me, it has seemed like uh, not many women really do think being a woman is very good. My social media and news feeds have seemed extra populated with Articles, research, sociological data, memes, movie reviews, and satire that has led me to conclude that there are plenty of women who don't feel so great about being a woman. A poignant example of this is the Barbie speech. Maybe you heard it. Over the summer, I became aware that a monologue in the blockbuster Barbie movie was really resonating with women. The speech opens with one of the characters saying, it is literally impossible to be a woman. And then she uses the phrases have to, supposed to, or always be to outline almost 30 often contradictory things that she believes are expected of women in our society. And she ends with, I'm just so tired of watching myself and every other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. Does this resonate with you? Do you think being a woman is impossible or very good? Are you more aware of the impossibility of being a woman or the very goodness of it? I'll be the first to admit that being a woman doesn't always feel good. Um, in my own life, three things content me to doubt that it is. The first is just female experience. Scripture is painfully clear and realistic about what life is like in a fallen world for both men and women, but it's, I still forget that life will actually be hard. Um, I can read what God says about pain and childbearing and still be surprised at the literal pain and frustration that my body experiences related to the capacity to bear children. Then there are statistics of disproportionate abuse, neglect, and injustice that women face. Though these are symptoms of sinfulness in our world and not how God designed things to be, they content me to doubt the goodness of being a woman. Then there's the societal pressures, like the Barbie speech was alluding to. Every culture seems to specialize in generating mind-boggling amounts of expectations for women. Beauty standards, expectations about our capacity, relationships, behavior, motherhood, career, just to name a few. And moreover, these are often filled with contradictions and double standards, and trying to, to understand them and let alone actually fulfill them is exhausting. It can make womanhood feel exhausting. And then... Uh, the final thing that content me to doubt the goodness of womanhood is my own sin. 
Um, and this can relate particularly to this topic of biblical womanhood that we're talking about tonight. Thankfully, most of the time, I do find this to be such a compelling topic, and I'm full of faith to try and glorify God in the ways he wants me to as a woman. But sometimes the high standard of godliness in Scripture is just a reminder of how much I fall short, and it can seem like one more area of added pressure. Of course, this is a flaw in me, not Scripture. But with all of these and and plenty more contributing to the difficulty of being a woman, what is it that actually makes it good? Um, Well, I believe, and and I like to study this, and I've really come to be confident that God's word really gives us so many reasons to embrace our womanhood with joy and hope and faith. Um, Despite the fallenness that we really do experience in this world, being created by him as a female is very good. And there's ample encouragement for us in in the whole of Scripture for this. But tonight, I'm going to make four observations from the passage Betsy taught from, Genesis 1 through 3. Um, You're welcome to flip there. I'm not going to be reading the whole thing. I'm just going to be referencing it. Um, If you'd like to, you can flip there. But the observations I'm going to make are going to focus on who God is and how he relates to us um, and and how this can encourage us as women. So the first thing that I think we see, the very first thing, literally, in Genesis 1-1, is that God is a creator. He's our intimate creator. Um, the The first words in the Bible are, in the beginning, God created. God is the only person who can create something out of nothing, and this tells us a lot about him, his power, his wisdom, his transcendence. God simply says, let there be, and there is. Betsy pointed out that the creation language, let there be, shifted to let us make when God created mankind. Regarding the creation of Eve specifically in Genesis 2.18, God says, I will make a helper fit for him. And in 2.22, it says God took a rib from Adam and made it into a woman. This word made could also be built in the Hebrew, and it speaks to intimacy and intentionality. It means women are not the result of evolution, the confluence of time and change. Instead, God thoughtfully and intimately hand-designed woman. She's the product of his wisdom, power, and love. When God made Eve, he set the pattern for all womankind. He determined how the XX chromosome would play out in our bodies. There are male-female differences in every system of our body, and the evidence of this is increasing all the time. I wish I had time to go into some of these. Some of them are evident even in utero. So even in the womb, you can start to see how increased estrogen versus increased testosterone starts to, you'll see differences in the babies in the womb. And God says this is very good. These differences are very good. Moreover, we know that God not only set the pattern for female biology in general at the beginning, but he was intimately involved in our creation as individuals. Psalm 139, 13 and 15 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. So God knit each of us intricately together at birth. Your particular body type, facial features, mental abilities, personality, and strengths were handcrafted by God himself. No two of us are the same, and that's a good thing. So no matter what our culture or our own thoughts tell us about how good or bad our bodies are, 
whether we measure up to any number of standards for, we, for female perfection, we can be confident that our bodies were not a mistake. Each woman here embodies the beauty of being made in the image of God as a female, and she glorifies him when she embraces this is very good. The second thing I think we see from this section of scripture is that God rules us with loving providence, and we need to define the word providence. Here's the definition given by the Heidelberg Catechism. God's providence is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. In creation, we see God's providence everywhere. God doesn't just make everything and then leave it to run as it will. He upholds it by his hand from the very beginning. I counted 18 different verbs to describe this in chapters 1 and 2. Words like caused, created, said, separated, made, called, set, blessed, breathed, formed, took. For example, God separated the light from the darkness. He gathered the waters, told the plants what fruit they would bear, set days, nights, and seasons, created individual beasts according to their kind, placed man in the garden, brought the woman to the man. And after the fall, in chapter 3, we see both the kindness and severity of God's providence. The consequences of sin are administered by God himself. He says, I will, to Eve, I will multiply your pain and childbearing, and to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And yet his kind providence is also shown when he calls to the man after their sin and makes them garments and clothes them himself. The same God whose activity we see in this story of creation governs each detail of our lives. And what does this knowledge do for us, knowing that he guides our lives by his fatherly hand? Well, again, the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, what good does it do to study the providence of God? And the answer is that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is the future have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. And the reality is so many of our greatest joys and deepest sorrows are related to our womanhood, our capacity for mothering, our desire to help, our desire for deep and loving relationships, for marriage, for home. If our lives are the random product of chance, womanhood is scary. But knowing that we are governed by the loving providence of God, we can navigate both the joys and trials of womanhood with patience, thankfulness, and good confidence, as the catechism says. The third thing that we see is really obvious. He, God speaks to us, and that's actually a big deal. God didn't leave us to figure out who he is, what our purpose is, or what is best for us. He told us from the very beginning. I counted 19 references to God speaking in Genesis 1 through 3. God began by speaking to his people, and he continues to speak to us through his word. The Bible reveals God's character his story of redemption, and how to walk in wisdom as his people. Moreover, it, 
it masterfully informs the often complex lives of women. Scripture's vision of godly womanhood allows for diversity that spans different personalities and situations, cultures, and centuries, while revealing foundational truths that are for all women for all time. God's word gives us the perfect wisdom of the one who created us and frees us from the worldly wisdom um, from the world's wisdom and expectations. First John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Eve thought God's commandments were burdensome, but she learned the hard way that it's actually disobedience that's burdensome. The Barbie speech I referenced earlier is a great example of this. The majority of what was communicated are not actually things God expects of us. A few of them are in the right context. She mentioned selfishness, yes. Um, But a majority of them are not, and several of them are actually forbidden by Scripture. Um, And that's just so true of so much that comes to us in terms of these expectations that we just feel and see. Um, So let's just make sure we're following the right expectations, the ones that aren't burdensome and are from God. Because God has spoken to us, we get to experience the freedom of walking in his ways. I love the picture of this freedom in Psalm 119.32. I will run in the way of your commandments, for you have set my heart free. As Christian women armed with God's word, we have the, the freedom of running in the path of his ways and experiencing joy as we do so. And then the final thing is that we see here is that God is committed to his people. Maybe you aren't feeling the freedom that I just described because you're aware of sin and failure. And I think we see um, in this passage that what we see here will help us with that. And that's that God is committed to his people. Despite their sin, God did not abandon Adam and Eve. Think about that. God had given them a beautiful garden. He had given them a purpose, a relationship with himself and each other. And he just gave them one rule, and they broke it. He didn't have to do anything except kill them immediately, but he didn't. Instead, he pursued them. And as Betsy showed, he revealed hints of a plan of redemption that thousands of years later have come to each of us who have trusted in Christ. God didn't abandon the first sinners, and he hasn't abandoned us. When God saved you, he committed himself to you. Paul tells the Christians in Philippi, I am sure of this, that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that's true for all of us. This deeply encourages me because I am very much a work in progress. So much growth is required to become the woman scripture calls me to be. But God is committed to me. He's committed to you. And this makes womanhood a Christ-empowered adventure. Jesus stands next to us. He forgives our sins. He helps us to grow into his image. And he will complete this work when he returns. So I hope you are encouraged that being a woman is good. It's good because women were intimately designed by God. It's good because our lives are wisely guided by his providence and his word. And it's good because in Christ, he is committed to us for eternity. Most of all, it's good because Christ came to save sinful women like us, and because of this, we get to glorify him with our lives because he is very good. Over the past several years, um, God has been taking me on a journey in the area of my emotions, 
both understanding my own emotions and others' emotions, but also in how God views emotions and uses them for good in our lives and how that's part of bearing his image. Throughout the years, I've grown to view negative emotions like anger and anxiety as emotions to be fought against, as if they're always sinful. So for years, I've just played the be tough April card, just speak truth to yourself, and that's what it means to walk as a Christian. But recently, through reading the book Untangling Emotions by Alistair Groves and Winston Smith, counselors from CCEF, I'm discovering that emotions are not always sinful in and of themselves. And sometimes we have emotions that if we don't engage God in them, they can lead to sin. Um, God has used marriage as a tool in my life in recent years to to reveal the patterns of my view of emotions as I encounter both my emotions and my husband's emotions. For instance, John has shown me how my words and body language can communicate my disapproval of how he feels about something. So instead of giving him the respect of just letting him express something and me listening well, rather I'm self-righteously forming in my mind what the right response is and then pointing it out to him. It doesn't go over very well. Uh, Often my attitudes and expectations have communicated, you just have to stop being angry. God isn't pleased with that, as if one can just stop an emotion by just deciding to. So through my husband's honesty and by the Spirit's heart-softening work, the Lord has been showing me that what it looks like to just sit with someone in their pain instead of just pointing out what they need to do and looking for how God is going to use it for good which only minimizes their experience and pain. So untangling emotions has been helpful for me to see how my lack of empathy was hurting my husband in our marriage. I'm realizing that when I tell him how to direct his emotions, I am actually anxiously trying to control him because his emotions are making me feel uncomfortable. But God is actually calling me to trust him to be the Holy Spirit in my husband's life. That's not my job. And I'm called to be rather patient and respectful, um, to pray and look for evidence of of God at work um, in him. And he has been. Um, As his emotions affect my own also, the Lord is calling me to rest in him, to meet my own needs, desires, and expectations. Um, Often in these moments, my misplaced hopes and longings are revealed. Um, The Lord is also helping me with my own emotions of anger and anxiety as it expresses itself in all my relationships. I have prayed like I've never prayed before through some tough feelings over the past few years. I've seen how the natural ways that I've always dealt with my emotions just weren't working. Um, Like we've read about in our reading for this week, there's often more behind the emotion, um, both in the other person and in yourself, that should be evaluated before you just draw conclusions and make knee-jerk reactions to vent your emotions. So over the last few years, God has been faithful to answer prayer after prayer as I've just audibly let all my emotions out before him. Um, There was ugly, sinful thoughts expressed and also humble, painful cries laid out before him. He not only tenderly ministered to my heart, he gently revealed the way forward and softened my heart to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. Um, I could just unload all of my emotions and also receive the healing and power to walk in obedience to what he was teaching me. So somehow in that process of engaging God, the intense emotions were lessened 
and he enabled me to see things from a different perspective. I'm kind of speaking of this in the past tense, but it's, it's very present. We were just talking at our table how it's like, it's, it's ongoing. Um, in my need over the past few years, I've asked the Lord to also help me just love his word more and to see him in it as the object of my love and joy. So I've worked through a chronological reading plan for several years now, and the Lord has really used that to grow my understanding of the whole storyline of the Bible and to know him and his character in a way that grows my love and affection for him too. As a result, it's been easier and more of a delight to turn to him in all my emotions, anger, anxiety, grief, excitement, joy, to relate to him as my father and friend and to believe that he really sees me and is for me. Like, that's so powerful. <laughs> I don't want to just do the right thing without my heart being motivated by truly his goodness and his grace. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So what a privilege to know this all-sufficient God who became poor so that we could be rich in him. And part of that treasure we possess in Jesus is intimacy with the Father in our emotions. The spirit of the living God is at work in us. We can be honest about it all, ask for his wisdom to see what we are wrongly valuing and submit to him in obedience. And he will always meet us in that place. So I just wanna encourage you with that. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I've been a member of CCK for almost 20 years. I'm married to Josh, and we have three boys. I've had opportunities over time to learn patience, most often in facing my own sinful habits. However, more recently, God allowed a significant event to further cultivate patience in my life. About three years ago, I had a surgery that was a medical necessity. A tumor was removed from my spinal cord, and in the process, my nerves were damaged. I'm left with severe chronic nerve pain and muscle weakness. Although thankful for the removal of the tumor and its benign nature, I'm aggravated by the persistent side effects. Even after undergoing a variety of medical treatments, it looks like things aren't going to get any better. Pain medications give some relief, but the pain is always with me. I hesitate to share this with people because it tends to be a downer. Apart from a miracle, these side effects are permanent. I used to love being active especially with my boys. Now, instead of participating in the basketball game or bike ride, I'm mostly sitting on the sidelines. Because of muscle weakness, I often need to sit instead of stand. At home, I need help opening containers, cutting food, and handling hot things, to mention a few. It is humbling and irritating not to have the full use of my hands. 
Further, I experience mental fatigue from the continual feeling of pins and needles. As a result, I occasionally leave events early to go home and recover. This is frustrating, especially if retreating interrupts a good conversation. Overall, I have a tough time not being able to keep up the pace that I did before surgery. Most days, it looks like I'm a slacker, but I'm actually working my tail off. As these limitations carry on, they are becoming increasingly difficult to cope with. A passage from the Bible that is informing my thoughts and changing my heart is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In these verses, God is teaching me that he employs trials in my life to accomplish his purposes. Specifically, God is using these limitations to test and strengthen my faith. When I wake to another day of pain and weakness, I am tempted toward discouragement and dread. In those moments, I've experienced God at work gently reminding me that anything which he has spoken, I can accept as absolutely true. By the Spirit, I'm reassured that every one of his promises are sure. And if I firmly believe the hopeful things in his word, my faith will increase. And according to James 1, endurance will be produced. One promise that has become invaluable to me is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Often, I am nearly paralyzed by fear that I won't have the strength to make it through the morning, much less the day. But then, this weakness that God has allowed compels me to cry out to him in prayer. I ask him to dispel my doubts and help me believe that his grace is enough for me. He then embraces my weak nature and welcomes me to fall back on the power of his grace. This feeble state, which I often despise, is actually bringing God near and making way for divine strength. Even if he doesn't erase my weaknesses, he will empower me to endure, ultimately to glorify his name. Lastly, I am thankful that God is using this trial to fortify my faith and produce patience in my life. His eventual promise in James is that steadfastness will have its intended effect 
of making me perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1 verse 4. In other words, growing in patience through long suffering will make me more like Christ. How kind of my heavenly Father to grant me an opportunity to become more like his son. 